Hello and welcome to Blog uh, 1201's uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Bradley Alsop. I'm your host this evening and I'm joined by the two Callums. Um, we're hoping Ollie's going to pop in a little bit later, but to, to kick us off, I've got the two Callums with me. I've got Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. And I've also got Callum Watt. Good evening. And it's been another uh, week in politics full of, of surprises. And actually, I... Well, uh, we'll see if, if the panellists disagree with me, but I think actually probably a slightly more optimistic week um, in in world politics than, than we've had for the whole of the year, really, I think. I don't know what the TV think. Um, I'm feeling a bit more upbeat, that's for sure. Yeah, um, we're, we're getting there, maybe. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so, obviously, we, we had our election coverage special of um, the, the US election. We had that. We put that out earlier this week. Um, so, uh, depending on your views, that that could be seen as a, a slightly more optimistic uh, outlook for for US politics and and indeed world politics. Um, but of course, on the on the day we put that pod out, so we didn't really cover it that day, um, was the announcement of a of a vaccine um, from Pfizer with a ninety percent success rate in some forty three thousand clinical trials. I think it was. Um, that you know, and and indeed, Boris um, took took to do an announcement uh, that that same day, um, with with a, a reasonably optimistic outlook for for when the vaccine is going to be available for people in the UK. So there is there is even talk um, of of some people beginning to to receive the vaccine even before Christmas. Um, I think it's it still it still needs to go through formal approval um, at, at various levels of, of governments and, and world government and things like that. Um, but but it, it's looking likely that the vaccine might begin to be rolled out before Christmas. Although obviously it will be some time after that before we have a, 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 a properly vaccinated population in, in the UK and, and other countries as well. Um, and actually today it's been announced that, that, that a second um, vaccine has, has got a 94%. Um, success rate from uh, I can't remember who this second was from. Can anyone remember? Did anyone seen it? I I can't remember. Some US firm. Some some US firm. Uh, Moderna. Oh. Moderna is who it's from. With a even more even better ninety four percent success rate um, in clinical trials. Although I I think the Pfizer one is the one that the UK has got um, you know a, a supply of already, and Moderna not so much. Um, so, so optimistic, I think. Uh, uh, Callum Roper, what, what do you think? Is this a, a cause for for joy for for the UK population, for the world? I, I, I think it's certainly a cause for uh, cautious optimism. I think that we got to remember that this is simply the start of the road when it comes to vaccines. It's it's something that takes a lot of time. They say that they've had a number of trials, but normally these sorts of things take years to do. And I, and I would express caution in, in certainly waiting for this to be rolled out properly for the wider public. It probably isn't ready yet. I know for a fact it isn't ready yet. So we've got to obviously have caution. we still got to follow the rules. we still got to be following social distancing um, and, and isolating where necessary. Um, still need to be washing our hands. This isn't just a magic wand that's going to make COVID go away. It's a process that we have to follow. But... It is, it, is a, it is a relief to hear that we are getting closer. It's certainly a lot closer than we were a month ago where we were talking about potentially spending all of next year um, going in and out of lockdowns and, and, and various COVID measures. So I, I, for one, am more optimistic, but I think that this has potential ramifications in the short term that people are going to start disregarding the rules um, purely because, oh, well, there's a vaccine just over the horizon that will be rolled out shortly. Therefore, we can start to ease up and uh, let people do what they want. But we've got to remember the NHS is is at the moment creaking. A number of hospitals are declaring alerts where the ICU is, is just full. We've got seasonal flu on top of COVID, on top of all other diseases and injuries and, and, and illnesses that will be popping up at this time of year. So we've got to, we've got to have that caution. But Let's, let's just sort of smile a little bit and cheer up because it seems like the end is is coming upon us for this this COVID journey. Yeah, I, I think you're right about the um, the the danger here, and you know I've caught almost sort of caught myself thinking this. You know, sort of the 
oh, you know, well, it, it's almost over now, isn't it? You know, it's it's been a rough year, but it, but we're, we're almost through it now, aren't we? Because we've got the vaccine just after Christmas. We'll 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 start getting that, and it'll all be rolled out, and everything's fine. Um, but actually, you know, in, in a slight twist, it's almost more important that we follow the rules now because, you know, there's a sort of argument that, you know, we've had a big debate on this over the last few, particularly the last few weeks as cases began to rise again. Um, and I think some of the Tory backbenchers have begun to get a bit more confident in vo- vo- uh, voicing sort of anti-lockdown sentiment. You know, we, we've had this debate of, well, you know, the virus is here now. We've got to learn to live with it. Um, we, we can't keep going into lockdowns. We, we can't keep putting these stringent measures in. And I don't agree with those arguments for a second, um, because at the end of the day, it's you know it's human lives we're talking about here. But but you can almost sort of see their point, can't you? If this is going to be a really long term thing, um, then you know we we can't keep locking down forever, or we can't keep restrictions up forever. Um, but now a vaccine sort of not quite just around the corner, but you know what I mean. Now it's a very immediate thing that we could, we could have a vaccination pro. You know, people could be pretty much vaccinated in the UK this time next year. We we could have a fairly wide coverage of vaccination. Um, it, it's almost more imperative that people follow the rules and the lockdown now um, because it, it's such a short time. We know there's an end date to this now. We, we know that the vaccine's coming in it and it can alleviate this and bring an end to it. So it's almost more important that we put that extra effort in now because we know it's only for a limited time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that entirely. And obviously the, um, on a local level, I was in a I was in a meeting with um, where Karen Lee was involved. She was in the meeting, and obviously she's still a nurse. Um, and about sort of halfway through, she said, "Oh, I've I've got a text to say that my annual leave has just been cancelled um, for or uh, or might be cancelled for next week because of the um, major incident that's been declared across United Lancashire Hospitals Trust, so Lincoln." Uh, Grantham and Boston um so uh, obviously that's uh, that's a bit worrying isn't it that suddenly come out of the blue uh, there was no indication that that was coming apparently um and they've suddenly introduced all of these new measures they've they're stepping up the creation of a rehabilitation unit at Grantham uh, the interesting thing about that of course is that they have turned Grantham previously into what they call a green site um which you know is a place where there was, wasn't supposed to be any COVID, basically uh, which caused all sorts of upheaval there's been a lot of uh, healthcare workers that were moved out of that site very very rapidly and redeployed elsewhere um after several months of already having been shunted around quite a lot um so obviously there's been an awful lot of disruption within uh, the health service in uh, Lincolnshire, uh, and now this other major incident has been declared. So we don't know what that means yet. Um, whether there has been a major uptick uh, in the number of patients, one assumes that is probably likely. Um, so we do have to be quite cautious. Um, it's that second wave that we have been talking about that we were talking about all summer. That we knew that was coming. It's definitely here, and it's here in a very present sense, and it's in Lincolnshire itself. So. We do have to be very cautious about our, about our behaviour um, and just ride it out for the next six months. And then hopefully it's uh, maybe not completely over. I imagine COVID will still be with us for many years to come, but it won't be a, as much of a threat anymore once the vaccine becomes uh, ubiquitous and we do get uh, herd immunity, but herd immunity correctly applied through a vaccine. Um, that's that's what uh, that should be the prerogative for the next few months. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that is the point as well, isn't it? In that this vaccine is not, you know, the chief medical officer has said this himself. Um, you know, th- th- this isn't going to make a difference really. This vaccine for for the second wave that we're in now. Um, it, it's you know, by the time a vaccine is going to reach a significant amount of people in, in the UK, it's going to be sort of a third wave or a fourth wave that, it, that it's going to be affecting. Um, the second wave, as you say, is here and it's here now. Um, and, and a lot of hospitals are struggling. Um, and I mean, you know, you, you sort of look at the seven day average, it's it's in the 300s um, for deaths a day. And and if if that carries on throughout the winter, you know, we, we could be looking at tens of thousands of deaths. Um, and, and the vaccine can't really do anything about that because because it's, it's too late almost. 
Um, and I, I, I suppose there's a debate to be had about the, the, the lockdown we're in now and actually whether it is is an actual lockdown. So obviously we've still got schools open and we've got universities open. Um, I personally think it, it, it's bonkers that, that universities are still doing in-person teaching um, in, any, in any significant level at all. Um, I think unless there's sort of important lab work that, that has to be done face to face or some, you know, something small like that, I, I don't think the university should be should be doing any sort of face to face teaching whatsoever. Um, you know, it, it's not really a lockdown if significant portions of the population um, are are still doing face to face activities like that. And you know, you see, I know there's a, a letting agent around the corner from from where I live. Um, their offices were empty during the first lockdown, but they've got um, half a dozen staff in there every day when I go past now um, so I, I think you know we, we're in a lockdown but when it doesn't really feel like the first one it's n- not anywhere near as severe as the first one yet you know you look at the depths of the cases and we're in exactly the same position we were in March so I'm, I'm not really sure what, why we're not having a stringent lockdown particularly with a vaccine just around the corner. Uh, Callum Roper your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, as as a as a student that's still attending at the University of Lincoln, my school has taken the decision to go fully online, whereas it, it seems to be left to a school by school basis, which is which is quite interesting that the government, um, the university, doesn't have a, a clear policy on on how to approach this. It seems to be a sort of as and when thing, or the the heads of schools are making these decisions by themselves. Um, which I, I I know that's put a lot of people's um, worries to ease in that school, but it means that there's a number of other areas of the university that are turning around and saying, well, what about us? Why, why are we still in person? But that school has deemed it necessary to go online for the safety reasons of both staff and students. So it, it's a real mishmash of, of policies. And, and I think that actually uh, is very much reflective of, of the government's approach which is a mishmash of, well, stay at home if you can, but if you if you can't work from home, go to go to work. But we really encourage you to go to work if you can. It's it doesn't make sense. It's not very coherent, and I think that that's actually reflected in some policies of not just the university, but a number of other organisations. And just a, a, a side thing, Matt. While we're recording this, Matt Hancock has been given a press conference, and the. Um, the Moderna vaccine, apparently the UK has now placed an order of 5 million vaccinations, which will be some point down the line because they currently don't have the uh, the processes in place to produce that many vaccines. But that's another thing that's coming towards us on the horizon. Yeah, and I think the, the flip side of that, of course, is that when students do contract the virus, um, the, the treatment that some students have had is absolutely appalling. I don't know if either of you have been following what's been happening at, at Manchester. Um, but you know, students have been, been penned in like animals. They put fences up to stop students leaving the halls. Um, the students there have organised a rent strike. There's others that are occupying a, a university building. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they held a, a large protest and, and tore down some of the fences that have been put around them. Um, I, I think it, it's it's quite incredible what what some universities have done to students that have contracted virus through no fault of their own. You know, students have been told to come back to university, and they they've paid out what is you know let's face it, the student rental market is one of the most extortionate in the UK. And they've paid this extortion amount of rent. They they've come back to university. Um, to uh, honestly, they're getting a substandard experience at many universities, and not necessarily the fault of the universities, but I think. There was an issue in terms of how that was communicated to what to students about what to expect when they came, and um, and then when they quite predictably contract the virus because of these conditions they're in, and um, they're they're then treated like shit by their universities. Basically, I think, I think it's absolutely outrageous. I don't know if you, either of you. Yes, Callum. Sorry, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I. I, th- I think that obviously it's solidarity to all the students across the country that are, uh, are facing these these appalling conditions from their universities. You know, they are literally now being treated like cattle. You know, we've, we've had all the metaphors of it, you know, how we're treated like livestock or, or cows to be milked. But it's actually going that way now. And it's ridiculous. But I mean, in, in, in Lincoln, we've had um, a, a more of a, a softer approach. Obviously, they've been quite strict. No mixing in accommodations, you know, sticking to the rule of six where possible. Obviously, we have student flats of up to 20 plus people 
and that's university run accommodation so that's those are huge bubbles when you take into the fact that these perp these people are potentially still doing face-to-face -face teaching that's that's a lot of numbers that can quickly spiral out of control but uh, also credit to um the students union here you know we we've we at times we've we've been their detractors of the things that they've done but actually they're offering free food supplies out to any isolating students. I know that the wardens here, they have residential wardens on campus and they've been ringing around to, to isolating students to make sure that their mental health is, is in order. But compared to some other universities, the University of Lincoln has done pretty well, actually. But the big concern for me is this, this evacuation period coming up in a few weeks' time. I think that what's going to come out of that is going to be once again more organized chaos because if you look at the window and then you compare it to actually how terms are how long terms are lasting um the university of lincoln for example is actually going to be right up till christmas they were planning on being uh, teaching so everything's going to have to go online and during that week students are expected to just get up and leave now i know for a fact speaking to students that a lot of them depend on part-time jobs where they haven't been furloughed or sacked because of the pandemic. So they have to get into work if they're working in, in um, retail that's still open, if they're working in supermarkets or other sectors that are still operating. So they still have to get to work. I know for a fact that I volunteer at a food bank. Am I expected to go two weeks before Christmas when it's going to be its most busiest because the university expects us all to run away? So the, the, well, actually, the guidance for government, isn't it? it it's that... Um... Online teaching is, is to end, uh, sorry, face-to-face -face teaching is to end on the 9th of December, isn't it, for, for all universities? Yeah. And then um, the, the theory is, and I don't quite understand the theory, because as far as I'm aware, official advice is still to self-isolate for two weeks if you contract, isn't it? Um, so yeah. so the, the theory would be that there's a chance for, for students to sort of have a soft self-isolation period before then going home to relatives at Christmas. But if you, if you did the strict two weeks that'll bring you up to the 23rd of december now no student is still going to be in hall unless they're staying there for christmas no student is going to be there still in halls on the 23rd of december they're, they're all going to have gone i think not that what i'm saying is the 9th of december is probably too late to bring that in because a lot of students within that week will probably be going home if, if they're heading home well, for christmas the thing is bradley they they're being expected to leave in this this window two weeks before christmas that's actually a, a movement window they've been given to leave campus and go home. Mm. I mean, so I, 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 it's ridiculous, I think isn't that it? Our, it, it? Yeah, asking students to move en masse across the country within a very finite window is actually going to put more people at risk yeah. than if they were over the, the month of December leading up to Christmas. And indeed, maybe a couple of weeks beforehand, in it, towards the end of November, students start going home then actually I believe that that's a far safer approach than the current uh, approach that the government is encouraging. Yeah, I think you're right. But also there's, there's a question there of fairness, isn't there? Because if if things go according to plan, then the lockdown's lifted on the 2nd of December. So at that point, um, you know, a, a student should be able to, to travel home at that point, you would have thought, or, or basically, you know, do, do what they want within the, whatever the new rules are at that point. So it, it seems like students are being treated slightly different as a population, um, and I, I think the whole idea that students were ever not going to go home at Christmas was just ridiculous. You know, pe people were talking about students having to be locked up over Christmas. It, it was just farcical. There's no way that students aren't going to go home. Whether If they've got their own car, they're going to hop in the car and go home as soon as, soon as in-person teaching is finished. Um, or their parents are going to come and get them. And there's no way of enforcing it. There's nothing the government can do about it. There's nothing really universities can do about it, bar, bar the action of Manchester University. or I'm not sure which of the Manchester universities were, actually. There's, there's a number of them. And, you know, putting the fences up around student accommodation. But by doing that, there's not really a way to stop it. So I think any any plan, I can't remember I heard the saying, but basically, you know, any any plan that relies on on students not travelling home for Christmas, in, you know, any plan tackling COVID that relies on that is, is not really a, a goer, is it? It's just not going to work. And how can you blame students? Why would you sit in a cold university halls um, you know, with, with people maybe you don't know very well um, with, with nothing going on in the city and nothing going on at the university that, that's in person, um, why would you do that instead of just going home to, to see your family at Christmas? It, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Absolutely. It's, it's completely illogical. And I, I think, again, it comes back to students being treated like a commodity that's just sort of moved around as and when 
they're expected to move as instead of taking into account their the fact that they're people the fact that they've potentially mental health problems as a result of of the last few months and also the fact that it's extremely stressful moving moving around the country and, and moving backwards and forwards as you're uh, you know going between university and home with the added extra of a pandemic going on around you is extremely stressful and I, and I don't think that that's being taken into account as much as it should be yeah so so to to wrap up then the the, the current policy is is that there's there's a, a end to all in-person teaching on the ninth and and then uh, i hope that students sort of have a brief period to to self-isolate in, in case they have it and then and then they um, head home for christmas in an orderly manner and a small time frame and um, i think yeah it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes and and what that does to the spread of the virus um, but but I, I don't think it's just students either, is it? Every, people a lot of people move around at Christmas time. People people go and visit family in different parts of the country. Um, so I think it. I think we're going to need to have had a handle on the on the spread of the virus before that happens. If you see what I mean, because obviously the more people that have it when we start to move around for Christmas, the more it's going to spread. Um, so it, it 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 remains to be seen whether in the second of December that that will have done enough to bring down cases, but. For some sort of normal Christmas to resume, I, I strongly suspect that we'll be under something that maybe Boris doesn't want to call a lockdown, but is still pretty much a lockdown um, throughout most of December um, and until sort of the week before Christmas. And at that point, he'll he'll, he'll loosen restrictions for for Christmas. Is is my suspicion of what what will happen for the country next? Um. So we're, we're going to move on from COVID. We, we've missold ourselves a little bit because we pegged that as a slightly more optimistic news story and uh, we've quickly come back to, to doom and gloom between the three of us there. So apologies for that. Um, but our next story is, I suppose, one with slightly less high stakes um, in it and it's a bit of political intrigue. It, it is the uh, um, the leave... It, I'm not going to call it resignation because I don't know if it actually is, but it, it's... it's um, the I suppose the removal of, of Dominic Cummings from from Number Ten Downing Street that happened this week, um, what, what at one point seemed an, an unshakable um, uh, ally in Boris Johnson, um, you know, to to the point at which Boris defended Dominic Cummings' uh, infamous outing to to Durham Castle in in the middle of a pandemic to to test his eyesight, apparently, um, yeah, yeah, we've gone from that to the point where where Dominic Cummings. If not quite given the boot, at least uh, there's been a, a fairly severe falling out between Boris and, and Dominic, Dominic Cummings. Um, he he has left Ten Downing Street. I, th- I think he might technically still be on the on the books in, until Christmas because he he said he wasn't going to leave until Christmas, and and then the next day he left. I think he might technically still be working um, for the for Boris in, until Christmas. I'm not sure. Um, but it, he had that, it, you know, there's images emerged of him quite dramatically leaving via the front door with, with his cardboard box and his house plan. And a lot of people have said online that that, that was very staged and very choreographed. He, he wanted to be the focus of the story there. Um, because if you want to quietly nip out of, of Down Street, first of all, who has a cardboard box with stuff, um, you know, and a house plan and all that sort of stuff? That's like a prop, isn't it? Um, that, that's like something you see in a movie when someone gets fired. Um, but also the, there's a couple of back entrances you can use in, in Downing Street and you can quite easily dodge the press if you, if you want to do that. So the fact that he was leaving with this prop out of the front door and, and there was lots of photos of it was very much by his own design. And I think that probably echoes what, what he's been like as a special advisor. You know, they're, they're usually not people massively in the limelight, but he, you know, he hosted his own press conference about his visits to Durham Castle. Um, so, so he, he's definitely been a special advisor. It's not not been afraid to occasionally, you know, seek the limelight himself. Um, so, I don't, I don't know what either of you think. What what does this suggest for? First of all, what do you think has really happened? What, what why has this been brought about? And uh, I say, it's more importantly, secondly, what what might this mean for the future direction of Boris's government? Uh, Callum, what? I th- I don't think there was anything in that box. You know, I think it was literally just a just a, a prop. What what a metaphor um, for Dominic Cummings and his ideas. <laughs> well, actually, that was kind of the point I was going to make, really. The more I kind of read about this guy, um, the more interesting he seems, because he's written uh, not, so, not so much since January, when the last post on his blog, I think, was advertising, uh, when he was advertising for weirdos to work in government. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... 
the more I kind of read about this guy, I haven't read his blog exhaustively. There's 250,000 words on it. I, I wouldn't put yourself through it. No. Well, uh, but it, it is interesting to kind of dip into and also read some of the analysis that's been done because he is actually a, a bit of a radical thinker in many ways. Um, and you will probably find yourself agreeing with a lot of his points um, because his his perspective and but by the way this is not what this is what he writes not necessarily his actions um, because his actions somewhat contradict what he writes about but his view is that basically politics um, that the political culture in this country attracts the wrong sort of people. Um, in the sense that there's a huge glut, and this is why you say you might agree with it, there's a huge glut of politicians who have been to elite universities, they've studied politics, maybe economics, um, and they don't really have a great grasp of anything else. Um, and his theory basically is, uh, and it's quite quite well researched. And it, if, you, if he was writing an essay for you, um, uh, Bradley, you would probably give it an A star because his thesis <laughs> is basically is really, really well researched and referenced in the sense that um, you need intersectionality um, what, if, if you're going to be an effective organization. So if you look at, uh, you know, in the, in the world of academia, in the world of science, you know, everything has to be real, real, well researched, peer reviewed. And you get the best results actually when you're uh, intersectional with your research, when you cross-reference psychology with economics and history and so on. Um, and that doesn't really happen in politics. And there's worrying things like the fact that something like um, uh, I think it was 70% of parliamentarians couldn't tell you the answer to the question, um, what are the odds of getting two heads if you flip two coins? Um, the answer is 25%, but most don't wouldn't know that because they don't know how to make forward predictions. So that was that was kind of an, um, Dominic Cummings' theory, which is that um, politics needs to be more scientific. It needs to be less centralised as well. Um, you know, with with um, a more decentralised um, decision making process. The trouble is that the system within which uh, he is working is a very Thatcherite one, which is very centralising. Politics is de very definitely not like that, and it is very much at odds with neoliberalism and with the sort of uh, increasingly authoritarian tendencies of our political class. And his action, his own actions, of course, are contrary to that theory um, as well. You know, it's pretty well um, understood that he he has been. The driver for a lot of Boris Johnson's activities over the last year and a half that he's been in charge, and obviously you can see that the, uh, the cabinets, the treasury, um, and all basically all of these central functions of government—they've all been wrapped into one department. Essentially, this is why uh, Shadow Javid decided to resign as Chancellor of the Exchequer because he wasn't willing to accept. Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings people working in his office um, so the uh, the Treasury lost its autonomy in that in that respect what little autonomy it had uh, in that respect so that is wildly contradictory uh, to his point of view and so this is why sort of Dominic Cummings is is this kind of classic very good um, villain you know he'd be a great character in a story because uh, he is extremely intelligent. He's reached a lot of the right conclusions, but the way that he his means uh, of, of getting to what he perceives to be a, be a better end are quite horrific and authoritarian and not the way we'd like to go about things. Um, and so seeing him go now is quite significant because he is now he's now fallen from grace in a very spectacular fashion. Um, he has been the beating heart of this administration and its direction over the last year and a half it'll be i know we often say it'll be interesting to see what happens really really uh, so because now you know this political class this political party a contemporary conservative party which has been in charge for a decade 
which has had no real political vision except to try and preserve neoliberalism in the face of uh, economic systems collapse, um, now is even less directionless because it has no intellectual heart. Boris Johnson is no intellectual. Um, Michael Gove is is the only minister who who might have a, a vision which is kind of similar to Cummings, but he's completely inept. Um, so, it you know this this is now a directionless government, which I I can't I can't we we don't know where it's going to be. It's now in the middle of a pandemic. It's got no ideas. Uh, it's very dangerous in many ways. Um, Boris Johnson. Apparently, he has no interest in the job. I don't know how much we can believe that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's. I I don't really know how to conclude that because it's so it's so completely open ended. Uh, we don't, you know, the next six months are probably pretty set because we're going to be in lockdown, and then we get at the end of it, we get the vaccine, as we've just been discussing. Who knows what happens? It's very difficult to see what happens beyond March next year, um, as as a consequence of Dominic Cummings. Uh, leaving office and the other story this week about the vaccine. Um, so fascinating times in politics. I do, I do think um, so. It's really interesting the, the look into him you've had. I think I don't know if any of you saw the, the Channel Four um, dramatization they did with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dominic Cummings. Um, but I think I think particularly because you know they've got an actor to play him that was famous for playing Sherlock Holmes. I think there, there was they definitely sort of. Uh, Really played up the, this idea that Dominic Cummings was a, a a misunderstood genius, you know, a bit of a a, a bit of a rogue intellect on, on the outside of British politics. Um, which I mean, fair enough, the guy's able to to research and to write a little bit, but you don't exactly have to be a political genius to realise that um that a lot of politicians are out of touch with the real world and that we've got a too centralised a system. You, know, you don't exactly have to be, you know, sort of the new Machiavelli to to realise that. So I do think his personal sort of genius and brilliance was probably slightly overplayed and and very much, you know, partly because of this own own image of himself he was was trying to garner, I think, as well. Um, I think it's, I mean, he's not unique in that respect. I mean, the the other sort of intellectual type character that I can think of that's similar to Cummings is probably Milton Friedman, um, who, you know, again... Sort of this this genius like character, deeply like embedded in in economic theory, um, a lot of his conclusions you would agree with. They're, they're absolutely correct um, about the the, the instability uh, of the markets and the way individuals make decisions. But of course, he makes all the all, all the wrong conclusions. And actually, importantly, Milton Friedman never liked people like Margaret Thatcher because he didn't like the way they implemented his theories uh, when put into practice. And here we can see in Dominic Cummings, someone who has actually uh, put his ideas into practice and, and utterly failed to implement them in the way that he would see, uh, w- would think is ideal, I suspect. I suppose my my question is, um, so I don't know, so how much this is true, but I suspect it probably is. Is Cummings was sort of the architect of, of Boris's uh, rise to success, I suppose, and this this whole sort of uh, culture war sort of, sort of approach that the Tory government has been pursuing throughout the crisis, bizarrely enough. Um, and it seems to be one of their main ways of sort of of gaining the upper hand over over Labour. This idea of fanning the flames of a culture war as much as they can. Now, I listened to some commentary from Navarra Media earlier, and it, it was interesting because they were saying, obviously, you know, the, the first, the, I suppose the big allies uh, Boris has in terms of this sort of culture war thing was Trump. And it, it's very clear that, that that's not worked out very well for Trump now, although it, it worked a lot better than maybe we were hoping it was, and it, it led to too close an election than, than we were hoping for. Um, but ultimately, that, that sort of culture war narrative has, has not managed to keep Trump in office. Um, and and now there's not there's not a major Western ally um, for Boris on, on that sort of politics now you know Biden's back in uh, Biden's in charge and and sort of normal liberal centrism has has, has returned to, to normal working order in in the US at least for now and that coupled with Dominic Cummings' resignation and and you know the the main thinker behind that sort of approach 
will, will we see a, a, a government less less willing and less keen to fan the flames of a culture war? I don't know if either of you want to come in on that. I don't think that's likely. I mean, it's still the core part of the Tories' modus operandi um, to to try and get at the left by stoking fear of minorities, migrants, and, and so on. So this whole concept of culture war, um, even if it's been stoked and almost maybe you could say perfected by Dominic Cummings, um, it's not something that they're going to stop doing just because he is gone. Um, that's still going to be a problem uh, so long as uh, as, as uh, the Labour Party rises to it, um, which, of course, they did famously under Miliband and it never did them any good, as we've discussed in uh, podcasts pass him. Um, so, no, I, I can't see any change in that respect. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that... Um... Boris's record long before he, he sort of partnered up with Cummings um, in the Brexit campaign shows that he's certainly one to appeal to people's emotions. I think that this is what, what we're going to start to see continuously from the Conservatives because they, they seem to think that it's, a, well, I suppose partly it has been vindicated that it is a, an election winning strategy to, instead of appeal to people's logic and people thinking about issues, instead to go for the emotional response. Um, so obviously we've seen it over migrants, we've seen it obviously Brexit, um, both in the 2019 election, get Brexit done, but also take back control, you know, these really emotive responses. And even as mayor of London, you know, he, he would talk about, uh, obviously the garden bridge and Boris Island airport and all these sort of big, crazy white elephant projects that were never going to get off the ground, but it, it appeals to people's sort of excitement they, they they get excited or passionate about the what they're talking about and they, i think that this only goes to stoke this culture war and only goes to stoke this almost this taunting of of the of the left and the, the center left as well um in 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 the politics that we, that we're currently seeing play out so i think cummings leaving and being out of the picture isn't necessarily the end of cummings type political theory and Cummings type approaches to to issues, certainly post pandemic, because the conservatives are going to have to make, make a lot of uh, well, a lot of a lot of changes if they're going to get back in the good books with a lot of people because so many people have died pointlessly. So uh, perhaps the end of Cummings, but not Cummingsism um, for, for, for British politics. Which is a similar statement that we made about uh, the U.S. election, um, which will bring us on to our final topic this week. Um, so, so a claim I made, um, Callum Watt, and you were there for our for our discussion last week. So I'm interested in your your take on the U.S. election. But my my sort of uh, I suppose overwhelming sense was um, it, it's good to see the end of Trump, although actually he's not he's not quite there. Has he conceded yet? Does anyone know? Think, uh, he, yeah, he's he's about. I, I think he's. I, I observed that he seemed to be going through. Is it the Kubler um, sort of uh, stages of grief? So <laughs> initially, initially he was in total denial. Um, it was all votes of fraud, so on and so forth. He seems to be somewhere between stages two and three, which are um, anger and depression. So his. Uh, um, his tweet the other day was, well, he won, but it was clearly rigged. Um, so he's angry about it, but also verging on despondent. So it's uh, he's moving through it, and I'm sure, um, you know, he's still human, I think. Um, so maybe by maybe by Christmas he'll have reached the acceptance stage, and uh, he, he will uh, facilitate that peaceful peaceful handover. I mean, obviously, there's been lots of discussion about the fact that he may want to set up a, an alternative media network based on his own martyrdom. Um, sure, he can do that. Um, I don't think that there's discussions about a dynasty as well. Obviously, there's the Ivankas of the world, Donald Trump Jr., uh, people like that. And America does like its dynasties, of course. It had Bush. Could have had Clinton. Obviously, she won the popular vote. Um, so there is potential for a Trump dynasty. Um, 
but I'm I'm pleased. My my reaction to to it is really relief. Um, mainly not necessarily because it's Joe Biden who's been elected president, who again we've said many times is is nowhere near to being the sort of president the world really needs at the head of the most powerful country in the world at this point, climate change and so on. Uh, nevertheless, the thing I was mainly concerned about was was an arrow Biden victory, and then there being some resistance to a transition to a new authority com- uh, coming from. Uh, his supporters, his very well-armed supporters. And it doesn't look like that is going to play out. Um, I have, w- I would be very surprised if there isn't some civil unrest from them um, in due course. You know, it sounds awful to say, but there is still a possibility of someone somewhere taking a gun and, and going on the rampage. Um, I don't like saying that, but it's it's a possibility that that's that's I would say likely. However, I can't. It doesn't look like there's going to be that sort of organised resistance. It's very much a movement that's petering out. So we will see that uh, that uh, that transition. I think whether Trump likes it or not, um, he's going to be. Might, he might try and keep information from Biden, but he won't stop him from becoming president. And that's that's the important thing. Then, of course, it just switches to how do we progress with the Green New Deal um, and all of the other left uh, policies. I know that there is currently a battle within the Democrats over the narrative um, that emerges out of that election. And I think it's easier for us from across the pond, from outsiders' perspective, obviously there's that thing where um, foreign news sources are sometimes more honest about what's going on domestically in a country, um, whereas domestic uh, media tends to be more establishment orientated in its output. So we don't really know what's kind of being fed to the American population, but it seems quite clear to to me um, and, and to the British left that if you look objectively at the people who who won election in, in the down ballot election, so that the House, Senate, um, and, and in other elections that were happening on the same day, um, the people who were putting forward a more progressive agenda, um, some of them calling themselves socialists, they have all won their seats, whereas the Democrats who lost their seats were the ones who were resisting uh, calls for a more progressive uh, platform. So, if 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 the Democrats can look at their results objectively, that's a huge, huge boost for the uh, for the left within the Democrats uh, within uh, uh, American politics, um, which, by the way, is a lot more a lot better organised than it is in this country. So, I think there's enormous scope. Um, now that there is a, a slightly more slightly more sympathetic president in charge um, for pushing that agenda over the next four years. Um, I doubt I, there's quite a possibility that Biden won't uh, run for a second term. So there's even a possibility of getting an even more progressive president in four years' time. Obviously, we have to look at what the Republicans are going to do, but all, all of these, again, are very... very quite vague possibilities at this point. At the moment, the overwhelming feeling is relief um, for the people of the United States and the people of the world that you don't. We're very soon not going to have um, the arch villain that is Trump in the White House. Absolutely. And I'd just like to come in on that and and say that on the organized left in America, and and it's really quite heartening to see um, Despite the fact that they've been in the in the cold for so long, in terms of, of party politics, that they're still so well organised. You only have to look at some of the marches and union work that's being done in America to see that actually that the left is 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 very much thriving, if not in the mainstream, but at least on the peripheries, it's doing some great work and it's got some great candidates coming coming up and and, and starting to win seats as well. Importantly, I think that that's. That's incredibly, uh, incredibly heartening to see. Um, hopefully, we'll see the same in in this country. Hopefully, we'll see actually a, a new generation is is now coming through. We're seeing a page turn from that neoliberal Thatcherite approach that we've seen in the past to now 
people realize in order to save our planet in order to look after everyone in our communities and in our countries we've got to embrace a new system a new way of thinking and and it seems to me that certainly on the evidence of the last election obviously we're still getting analysis coming through that the left and, and these sort of progressive arguments are now breaking through which is which is great to see Yeah, I, I think I'm probably slightly slightly more pessimistic, perhaps, than, than the two of you on. I uh, thought you wanted to be all more optimistic this episode, Brad. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it is good. <laughs> Obviously, it's good. Obviously, I wanted Biden to win. and He is infinitely more preferable than, than Donald Trump. Um, and and it, it is a cause for some optimism um, for, for the world, I think, that, that he's managed to win. I think def- defeating uh, the far right at the ballot box whoever beats them is a necessary first step. Get, getting him out of the White House is a necessary first step to, to healing America and, and, and ultimately the climate. Um, but I think my worry is that someone like Biden, you know, and this is why I made the, the, the transition with, with the coming statement, is that it, he, he seems to have just about, and it was only just about, beat, beat Trump. But, but can he defeat Trumpism? You know, the, the things that drive people to, to Trump um, other than the sort of just, yeah, you're bread and butter racists. I think that's probably only a, a relatively small chunk of the people that vote for, for the likes of Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump. I think, you know, th- there's a much larger group of people there that have genuine grievances and concerns with the way the world is going. Um, that I think people like Biden, they, they don't make them worse, but they, they don't make them better either. They, you know, they, they don't tackle the fundamental inequalities in society. They don't offer... Um, transformational politics that, that gives people more control back over their lives, that, that, that tackles climate change. So I, I think things will get better under Biden for a number of Americans. Um, but I am concerned he will not do enough to tackle the root causes of the issues that led to Trump in the first place. That said, my hope is very much with what both of you have said around the, uh, they're calling them the, the group, aren't they? The, 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 the left wing sort of radical uh, American politicians coming up like like AOC and, and others, and they give me a real hope. Actually, they are really sharp, and they're really they're, they've not just got good politics. They they've got really good communication skills and organising skills. They know what they're doing, um, and actually, just in terms of efficiency, forget the politics for a minute. Just the efficiency of their operations are, are putting a lot of old school Democrats to shame. I think. Um, I my worry is I don't see a similar sort of base within the Labour Party in the UK. Um, and, and it's incredible to think that Corbyn brought in so many members um, and and changed the conversation so much within the party. But actually, now Corbyn's gone, it sort of feels like there's not an organised left movement in the party at the moment. There's various groups obviously operating, but it doesn't doesn't feel like there's a very clear banner under which the, the old Corbyn supporters can unite around and organise within the party. And, and I think that concerns me a, a little bit for the future of our party. Callum Roper, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I, I I just wanted to make that distinction because obviously in the in the American um, sort of election reaction that we had, I was, I was quite pessimistic about Biden's potential, but I, I I think that actually the the results of 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 Biden getting in and the fact that we're seeing so many progressive left wing candidates starting to break through in America, I think that that's a real positive thing to see. I think that the same is can be said of some of the new generation of MPs in the Labour Party. But just to pick up on the point about um, the left organising in, in the Labour Party and how, how we go about the next few years, in that I, I'm, I'm extremely frustrated by a number of people talking about splinter groups and splinter parties. I know uh, Chris Williamson, you know, he's he's decided to, I think he's joined Tusk or something like that. And he's saying that they're going to put candidates up against any red wall Labour person that refuses to stand up against austerity and 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 supported the uh, the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that's extremely frustrating to see, because actually, if we're talking about the left uniting, whether you're within the Labour Party or not, whether you've been suspended for whatever reason, I think that actually, if, if you have the interests of, of working class people at heart, then you've got to rally behind the Labour Party and, and really start to make a difference there. Because with the current system we have, first past the post, 
the only way of making any difference and getting any MPs into into Westminster is to back that one horse that's going to make a real change. Uh, Callum, what I would just add to that that um, Chris Williamson's an idiot, um, and uh, I, 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 I'm, glad, I'm glad he's not really in the party and, and not not going to be working in the party. I, I do agree with your point about splinter groups. I, I don't I don't have an absolute objection to to um, other left parties standing against the Labour Party. Um, it would be a bit hypocritical of me to do that because I, I was once a member of the Green Party in my misspent youth. Um, I, I think if there are real insurmountable ideological differences between you and the party, then I think go for it and, 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 sta- and stand it under another banner. Um, for me, that's not the case yet with the Labour Party. Um, there's, there's enough of, of, of socialism in the party and there's enough chance to, to promote a socialist agenda within the party that I think it's worth staying in the party and, and having that fight. Um, but you know, but if, if people genuinely don't believe that's the case, then that's fine. I'm not entirely convinced that that's why Chris Williamson is on this crusade. Um, I think he's a bit of an idiot, and I'm, I'm glad he's not really in the party. But uh, Callum, what, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, just to say about Chris Williamson, he he was never that radical to begin with. He when he was leader of Derbyshire County Council, a lot of people considered to him to be almost Blairite in the way he behaved. Uh, when he was leading that council, uh, it's pretty clear, and and indeed formed a coalition with the Conservatives as well. Um, while he was in that position, by the way, um, it's pretty clear to me that he is a political opportunist. Um, you know, when even during the Corbyn years, I remember. I think in the 2016 leadership election, he came to Lincoln. Uh, to advocate on behalf of of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, I was a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn um, and I was sitting there in the audience and it was just ranting, you know, ranting about about, uh, about, uh, Corbyn and, you know, almost fanatically, you know, the stereotype of a a fanatic in a film, you know. And uh, it was almost, I was thinking, you know, if I was a neutral, this would be putting me off. you know that he just so i think i think yeah i think he's 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 an opportunist he's playing a part and he's taking this opportunity to join tusk uh to to seek attention and probably to run his own party because the only other big heavyweight if you like within tusk is someone called dave nellist who was one of the mps who was in the militant and got kicked out in the 1980s he's the chair so from coventry i believe dave nellis is or nearby yeah, yeah, no, it was Coventry South, I think, it was his constituency. Um, so, yeah, so, I, but basically, for me, that's just a reset to 2010. At the end of the day, you've seen some people in the Labour Party go back to Tusk, incidentally. Um, to me, that's kind of survivable. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a footnote because they've never got many votes in elections. I can't see many Labour Party members seriously going to join them because. You know, we've talked about it so much on the left, not just on this podcast, the funding structure, first past the post, most importantly, also voter loyalty. You know, the fact that many people will still stick with the Labour Party, it's, you know, completely unviable for trying to form another party on the left. It's it's pure vanity, I think, in my view. Just to return to the, the point, though, that you were talking about before, just to finish on my views on America, um, you know, Joe Biden's administration, I wouldn't expect it to do anything or, or, or anything significant because, and it has been argued more cynically by some people that actually this was the best result for what you might call the establishment Democrats. You've got the president, uh, you've got the House, but the Senate will be the perpetual excuse for not having to do anything radical. Um, so that's the best result for them. It is all about organizing over the next four years for the next president uh the next set of primary elections the midterms and so on that's what it's all about so i think uh, look just looking at america from an outside perspective and i think it's the same to some extent it's the same here you know you've got a, a moderate in charge uh, of the labor party the main opposition uh, you know and He's not. He's not going to do anything radical. I don't think he's made that pretty clear. So it all has to be about building up that radical movement within the Labour Party, 
so that if Keir Starmer succeeds in the next general election, we can uh, ensure that, you know, because um, the party has a little bit more influence for its MPs over the over the over the prime minister in this country than the party in America has over the president. We can hold that that administration's feet to the fire. Or if he fails in 2024 or whenever that election is, that you know we have some people in place who are actually better prepared than Rebecca Long Bailey was back in December to actually stand, become the leader, get elected to the NEC, whatever. Um, and you know we will, we will have uh, a party which is much more in line with the sort of politics that we need to tackle climate change and endemic inequality. If they are succeeding in America as well, don't forget that will have a significant impact on the uh, politics of the Anglophone world, i.e., i.e., the UK, Scotland, Western Europe, and so on. well, so Western Europe obviously isn't Anglophone, but the Western world. Um, so that's what it needs to be about. People need to get back down to earth, down to the grassroots. Don't get caught up on individuals, people like Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, whatever, um, or indeed Joe Biden, because it's all about building those movements now over the next few years. You've got time to do it. And I know the climate is, is ch still changing and, you know, there is a sense of urgency to it. But if you're going to succeed, you need to be patient and you need to be active. I can't think of a, a better way to end, really. I think you've um, you, you've given us the, the inspiration that we need. Um, I, I would just echo those comments as a, as a closing remark, really, and that we we, we need to, to be organised. I think we need to be organised within and without the Labour Party and the left in the UK. I think we need a parliamentary reach power we need the grassroots movements as well, and, and organisations that can that can put pressure on the party externally as well. I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a joining Tesco Chris Williams. Um, I should it should caveat why I call him an idiot. By the way, it's also n a number of his comments during the anti-Semitism um, uh, issues. You know, he seems to constantly sort of almost goad the leadership to to suspend him um, and show a. a you know, disregard for, for Jewish comrades with, with a number of his comments. So that, that's my main reason for calling him an idiot. But Callum's quite right. You know, he's, he's got not not exactly got a history of, of supporting radical left opinions throughout either. Um, so so I, I'm not necessarily saying we, we should join, you know, Chris Williamson and Tusk, but um, it, it, um, we, we need to be organised within a number of organisations, I think. Um, but, but we, we, yeah, we need a new generation of, of left activists that are, equipped to take on the battles that are coming and 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 that will either be by taking up the reins of the party and um, if, if Starmer fails or it will be working within the party to push Starmer's agenda to the left as much as it can and um, so, so that, that's my final two cents um, and before we sign off Callum Roper is there any, anything more you want to add? No not really I mean just as Really, I'm just going to echo both of those comments. Just get involved wherever possible. Um, I seem to say it every week, but I, I mean it, guys. You know, And also, there's plenty of time now while you're at home in lockdown to attend online meetings and educate yourself as well on, on maybe something. Maybe read a book. You know, I, I've learned a lot over lockdown reading and keeping in, in touch with a lot of things. So, uh, yeah. I like, I like that. Maybe read a book. <laughs> Great advice. If you really have to, do it. <laughs> um, maybe maybe we should put out a list of what we're reading as a session. I'm reading uh, "Fully Automated Luxury Communism" by Aaron Bastani at the moment. It's quite a it's quite a short book, um, but it, but it's pretty good actually. Talking about you know the, the crises we face and and, and how how uh, what he calls communism and there's a big debate about that in the book. Um, you know what communism can offer that. Um, so maybe it'd be worth us putting out a reading list. I know Ewan's an avid reader as well, and, and we'll probably have a lot of things to add to that. Oh, if, we're, if we're doing this sort of impromptu thing, um, I, I'm reading The Feminist and the Sex Offender, which is a wonderful um, sort of uh, anti-carceral feminist text. Really interesting talking about alternative uh, alternatives to prison for dealing with uh, domestic abuse uh, and misogyny and so on. Really good read. Just recommending that. Um, Callum Roper, anything to add? Any any recommendations? 
I'm currently doing my dissertation, so I'm reading a lot about the poor laws and universal credit, both very depressing subjects. So mm. we'll stay clear of them, maybe, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've been listening to Podcast 1201. Um, it's, uh, thanks for listening. Um, stay safe um, while you're out there. Um, but it's, it's a goodbye from me, Bradley, and it's goodbye from Callum Roper. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. And it's goodbye from Callum Watt. Good night, all. So.